This is Mia Warren, Editor-in-Chief of Prompt, a literary magazine and community for writers at Northwestern University. This is our first podcast, and today we'll be speaking to Professor Brian Boldry, a senior lecturer at Northwestern's English Department who teaches classes in fiction, creative nonfiction, and literature. Brian is the author of several novels, including The Genius of Desire, Love the Magician, The Boom Economy, and Sorrow of the Elves. He's also written nonfiction, including the autobiography Box, Monster, Gay Adventures in American Machismo, and Honorable Bandit, A Walk Across Corsica. Brian has edited quite a few anthologies and has won numerous awards for his work, including the Lambda Literary Award, Joseph Henry Jackson Award, and the Western Regional Magazine Award. Lastly, he is the North American editor of the Open Door Literacy series for Gemma Media. Brian, welcome to the Prompt Podcast. Thank you, Mia. I'd like to start with a fun question, and this is a question you often ask of your students on the first day of class. So, who or what is your favorite villain in literature? Thank you for asking me that question. Nobody ever asks me those (laughs) pertinent questions. Um, I, my favorite villain, um, has to be the first one for me, which was Mr. McGregor from Peter Rabbit. Oh. He was, uh, he terrified me as a kid. Yeah. I know that's kind of hard to think of bang, being back in that age, but you, he was, you know, you're, you're from the point of view of, of, of Peter and Benjamin Bunny and the, ro- uh, you know, the right. roly-poly kittens. And um, he, you know, he, he's got, he goes through several books. He's just, he rages through and he's got all the power. You, you know? never see his face. Do no, you? you see a boot. Okay. Or you see maybe a beard way in the back. Yeah. He, um... He does, uh, I think, you know, it's Benjamin Bunny. Really, you know, Peter. everybody thinks of Peter Rabbit, but Benjamin's the one who's got the brains of the outfit. Right. And it's only in the, la- in the I think, uh, the roly-poly pudding, the, the pudding one, where he ma- meets his ignoble defeat. Um, and his wife, I think, also beats him, which is, you know. Right. He was so big. He was, you never see all of him. And I think that's what that, great that, villains that are. That totally, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so... That one kind of goes back for you a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay, so I guess, uh, you know, many of the students in the creative writing, writing program here at Northwestern know you, but not everyone knows that you actually attended Northwestern as an undergraduate. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and explain what led you back here to teach? Mm. I am um, very much, I, I would take a bullet for the, the undergraduate program in writing. Um, I think it's just, I can think of no better way to learn how to write. And I've been around. I've seen a lot of different programs with a lot of good ideas. But I think there's nothing better than the carefully structured way through writing, through reading, you know. And um, way back in 1980, blank, um, (laughs) I was one of Mary Kinsey's students. Mary really is the mastermind behind the program. Um, I think the fact that it hasn't changed very much since those days when she, when I was in it, is a testimony to how well it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it's it's a it's a program of apprenticeship, of close reading, of learning how to read well, and by learning how to read well, you become you learn how to write well. Um, I like that students have to take poetry first, and I, I keep finding more reasons why it's a good idea for students to take poetry first, even if you don't like it or aren't good at it. Um, the, 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 the attention to language and to right. rhetoric and prosody and meter and all those sorts of things. But also, um, so much of poetry is taken up with 
learning our old stories, you know, just thinking about the old, the myths and things like that, which is what we use archetypes in fiction and, and nonfiction to tell our stories. And we need to know those stories. I agree. There's, I think there's so many advantages for a prose writer to be studying poetry. And uh, uh, for those of you that might not be familiar with the creative writing program, how it usually works is, how it always works, is you take an intro class in poetry and then you have the choice to take fiction or nonfiction um, before applying to the program. Uh, so I guess I will go on. And right now, you know, a lot of... Uh, graduating seniors are considering applying to or are going through the process of applying to MFA programs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this program for undergraduates is, I think, modeled on MFA programs. So what do you think are some of the advantages and disadvantages of getting an MFA in this climate? Having gotten one, I guess that is its, its own, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, proving. There's my answer. I have one. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there's a lot of I will be very very specific. I think that the road to being a writer, every if you ask every single writer what how they became a writer, their story is going to be so wildly different. Right. I think in this day and age, one you know that that road through MFA is even can be wildly different the way the way that people do it. Um, I went through a low residency program, which is one of these where you go for two weeks and twice a year of intensive classes and workshops and and there and. There is there was a community. It's it's it'd be surprising that you that you think there was a community there. I think community is very important. I would kind of return really quickly to that question you had about our program and that long, year long sequence that you guys are in mm -hmm. is important because you guys get you support each other. You become a gang. Right. I'm sure you all have hoodies right now. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, but I think that that's really one of the great important um, uh, parts of a writing program is building community and doing and, and having some people you trust who know your work and can help you with your work. Um, I think that's what's one of the great things about prompt. Um, I would also add that, um, you know, there was a place that the road not taken, can I just tell you really quickly that at the time I was applying for MFA programs, I was also applying to, I was living in California mm -hmm. and as 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 every human being in California always wanted to be, I wanted to be a vintner, and I had applied to enology programs at Irvine and a couple of other places, and I got in, but they offered me more money or a better situation anyway for writing. So there's this person out there in an alternate universe who isn't writing at all. I'm just making good wine, and you know, probably, <laughs> you know knows everything about cheese and tannins. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree um, about what you said about community. That's something that Prompt is really committed to creating. Um, so I guess my next question has to do with the question of success. Mm. So this is kind of a tough one to grapple with, but Northwestern is just filled with ambitious people. Um, and as writers, we often find ourselves confronting the question of success. So what is your definition of a successful writer and do you think success depends on age? Right. I I think this is a great question because I, when I was in the fiction sequence back in 1980, blank, uh, <laughs> there were 15 of us, and there was one student who got a story published in a journal outside Northwestern. 
Um, I will not name his name because he may be listening right now. I assume <laughs> he was like what I call a frisbee liberal. You know, one of those guys who's he's he's a liberal in as much as it was it suited him. I, I imagine him now being the biggest Gingrich proposer in the world. But but that is neither here nor there. The part about the story is that because he was everybody's eyes were looking at him as the young enfant terrible. He basically. <laughs> He had the audacity during valuable class time. He made a list of all the writing majors, all the fiction majors of that year, and in order of most likely to succeed, placing himself at number one, of course. And at number fourteen was Brian Boldry, and at number fifteen was Dan Schoen. Wow, who's <laughs> about to come up with a new fantastic collection of stories called "Stay Awake." Right. Um, success for me is. Is a, over the years, it has become this um, to be able to write what I want to write and get it published. I just that, that's a huge luxury that, that I just really I don't I'm grateful for every day of my life, every, my, every day of my writing life. Um, a lot of my friends outside the writing world say to me, Why haven't you written a bestseller? and and that it's just it's that's not how it's done, you right. Know? Um, I think also success is is that community and and to be able to write what you want, even if maybe if it isn't published that I, I just feel as if patience and and cunning and finding that person who loves your work and brings it out as a as a, a kind of um, shepherd that 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 perfect editor or publisher is there is that person out there and you have to sort of believe in yourself and keep going um, there aren't those people who get early success. I used to be worried about them. And there are those who burn out really quickly. That one book, right. one and done, as they say. That's something that scares me a little. <laughs> I'm sure. But I think if you... And that, that might be the answer to that part about age. And that mm-hmm. it takes a while for a person to find their great subjects. Um, and nonfiction, for, you know, Susan Sontag, and as you know, if I start quoting Susan Sontag, I'm in the <laughs> zone. She wrote in her essay, Where the, Where the Stress Falls, mm-hmm. that... When she's writing nonfiction, she's writing it as if it were a uh, an exorcism, and if she, in other words, if she's writing about it in, in nonfiction, she wants to write it and never write about it again. In fiction, it's about themes and um, tropes and subjects that she's never going to be done with all of her life, and right. she's found those, and those are for fiction because she can keep inventing new stories that carry that freight. And I think that's really true. I think, and I think that some, a lot of times people, you, you'll see the one and done in the, mem, the world of memoir. You know, uh, that's where they, you see a lot of just one book and that's it. I, I, I'm sometimes surprised at people who come back. Philip Roth, for, for 20 years he was a fallow field. He was doing things. He was editing and things like that. And he started writing again. And it's just like, whoa. He started writing well. And I think right. anything can happen. Cool. So, well, yeah. I think that's a great answer. Um, you know, getting published is really important. And now there's just so many ways to get published that I think we would almost be fools not to even pursue it. Right. And I think also that whole tradition, as with prompt, of, of rolling your own. I mean, starting things yourself. Right. It, it never goes wrong. So sort of looking at the publishing side of things, you are an editor and publisher as well as a writer and professor. So can you tell us more about your company's worldview and how you have contended with the changes that the publishing industry is going through? Uh, this is almost, it's almost like we've, we uh, orchestrated this because the question seems <laughs> to follow on what we just talked about. Exactly. Um, I have always been, there's always been a part of my writing life that has, has been editorial in nature. I've, 
I think a total of eight anthologies I have edited. I started a couple of magazines and you know, started them and gave them over to somebody else when I got bored with them. <laughs> but uh, the uh, that role of sort of midwife to good writing, um, finding it, discovering it, loving it, and wanting to get it to a wider audience has always been satisfying to me. I really, it's been a few years that I've been solely, I think that 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 part of me has been consumed by reading student work and discovering it and, and making it better. But it, that place of getting it out there what has been sort of suffering for me. So that when I struck upon this, this well, it's, it's a deal with an old, old pal of mine who has been in publishing. I worked in, in publishing for quite a few years, way back in the day. Um, and she has this thing called Gemma Media, which is really, it, it focuses on Ireland. And over there in Ireland, they had this, they have still, uh, Open Door. And it was an idea run by Patricia Scanlon, who's kind of a chiclet author over there. Mm -hmm. And more. Chiclet is great. Um, great. It is. And she's got, she's just got a great heart. Um, she started rounding up the great literary uh, authors of Ireland to write books for people, new readers, she calls them. And that is... It used to be we call it adult literacy, but it has become things like English as a second language students, um, what we call reluctant readers, people who are just not in the reading world. And mm -hmm. and I and I've come to the point where I just really think it's important we see reading not as a luxury or some antiquated old fad or hobby. It's vital. You need to know how to read. You need to know how to know what news is in the newspaper, and you need to know how to read the instructions on your prescription bottle. Um, that said, I also think it should be a pleasure and that's, I want to sort of infect new readers with the pleasure of reading. So the idea that Scanlon had, she's got Roddy Doyle and Nick Hornby and Maeve Binchy writing short novellas, um, in a little snazzy covers. Um, they almost look like you'll, I'll show them to you. They, the, the covers on the hours, the, blah, blah, blah. the point of this is that we've adopted this. We've stolen her idea. It's her idea. I stole it. I'm having fun with it. I'm getting literary authors writing books for new readers with the idea that my, my unofficial mission statement is teaching slow readers how to be, well, slow readers. And that, you know, the ideal reader is for me somebody who's going to be reading slowly and carefully. And this is their audience. And so I, I'm, I've got these writers who are writing um, little stories, and now I'm moving into nonfiction a little bit. Um, uh, they're, they're stories that kind of recreate their experience with falling in love with reading. And that means things like Libby Mosier's book called Playgroup, which is really kind of shadows the, the, the novel, the little novel, um, A Christmas Carol. There's ghosts in it, but they're different kinds of ghosts. Um, uh, my own... This sort of flagship one is called the, the Sorrow of the Elves. And I was a big Tolkien freak. You know? <laughs> now I'm not. <laughs> but that, but that's okay. If you are, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I have the story about a drug addicted um, fantasy novelist trying to eke out a, a, another novel after ten years. So the idea here is that um, trying to reignite people into loving how to read. I think that's so interesting, and especially since I think. Often the question is asked, how is publishing changing? But it's really how reading is changing and how, yeah. how um, you know, I guess companies are responding to that. So, very cool. Um, sort of along the same lines, uh, this is more specific, but e-readers are becoming mm -hmm. part of the fabric of our lives. I see them on the L all the time. I see people with them all the time. 
my mom has one, I don't have one. What is your reaction to e-readers? Do you have one? I, I, I do in that I'm like the last, I'm always the last to get the new technology. Right, I feel I'm gonna the same get, way. <laughs> I, see it, I see it as this, and, you know, and the thing is it's gonna come down to the plat point where it's like, well, I'm gonna get one this month. When my next paycheck comes in, that's when I buy it. But then, you know, I get instead, a pay, I get a, I, I, I go, I'd rather buy a, a you know, a, a plane ticket to, to San Francisco. <laughs> I, and it just keeps being, it's the one luxury item that I keep passing up for the a preferred luxury item, which I think says something about where I see it. It's a, it's like, right. it's not, it's not, it's not a dis, um, a distribution requirement. It's, it's an elective. I think it, it's also, I see it as what I see it as, um, a tool, not a thing in itself. I, I, I must say as a, as a teacher of writing, I'm, I'm almost self-destructively generous with, letting people borrow my books. I have bought <laughs> Wuthering Heights at least a dozen times in the last 10 years because <laughs> I keep lending it to students. And it's not that expensive. It's like, you know, the signature edition right. is, what, five ninety five or something like that. But it, it adds up. And, and I think that all having... That, to me, is one of the great uses of e-readers, that all the things that are in the public domain would just always be there available for Right. Me. That makes sense. I don't know. There's something... I'm not sure how I feel about them, but, you know, there's something about a personality of a printed book that... That is really true. They, they really haven't gotten there yet. I know, and, I, and it goes against all... It's such a weird thing because it puts me in that position. I'm sorry, this is a, a very integral part, I mean, is, is the environment. I mean, I teach a classical literature in the environment, and to, like, you know, to give out, to, to make students re buy a massive reader that is, glean, you know, the gleanings from all these writings that, that basically cost us half the rainforest. You know, <laughs> it just seems so hypocritical. And so, you know, I love the thingness of books. I just do. And I love having them around. I love the smell of them. I love all that stuff everybody always says. It's just true. I do. And I think that there's something about the way I read on the page as opposed to on the screen is the difference, you know, there's that great essay by, oh, what's her face? I'm sorry, this is one of those places you're all going to have to look her up. She was the old New Yorker movie uh, reviewer, and she did this thing about watching movies on television. The way that a movie, when you push, when the, the, the light comes out and is, is cast on the screen in a the movie theater, is very much different from the light coming back in your face. Pauline from, Kale? Pauline Kale, thank right. you, saved my butt. <laughs> That's... I don't have a large knowledge of movies. But there you go. She's That's, the one, right? She so. really, she defended the idea of seeing movies in the theater rather right. than on a television screen for all sorts of odd reasons you don't think about. And that may be one of them. It's like, there's something about that thing coming at your face that it makes you passive. And when right. I'm looking into a book, it's the, you know, the, the rays are going down into the book. That is so flaky sounding, but I think there's an element of truth to it in my own soul. For sure. Well, we'll have to see how, how reading can, continues to change um, in the next few years. Yeah. Um, so to wrap up the interview, I'd just like to ask you sort of another fun question, or maybe this isn't fun, it's up to you to decide, um, but if you were on death row and had one last meal, you know, health restrictions aside, you can have whatever you want, what would you choose? <laughs> I'm, st I'm still stuck on death row. It's like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> That's another question. No, it is. And I'm reflecting upon my dog, whose whose life I am just simply and you know extending as long as I can because he will eat himself to death. There's he has oh. eaten light bulbs and sea urchins. Oh my and goodness! Just last week, a suet cake off a stump who it was covered in bird seed, and I just went slid right <laughs> through him, man. And I, I realized that when I go 
to the vet one day and they say, this dog has inoperable X. I'm just going to pour a bag of, of um, kibble on the floor and let him eat himself to death because that's how he wants to go. And I just thought, and, it's, and that's not pretty much true for me too. It's like, I just want to eat myself. Like if I'm on death row, I would like to just eat myself to death. Right. <laughs> um, I, do, I am a sybarite. I love all the pleasures. Not necessarily all at once. You know, belly dancing and couscous or, you know, or hooters. What the heck is that? <laughs> but um, sex and, and food. I mean, they're two different things, <laughs> two different times. Um, but I, there's a great quote from a, oh, a British um, theologian from the 18th century. He said, the sound of heaven. Uh, heaven is the sound of the clarion trumpets being played while you eat pâté de foie gras. <laughs> I do think of it just one of those crazy, you know, fall of Western civilization meals where they, we could have like really ten elaborate. courses, just really elaborate. Okay. It's just yeah, like the Bet's feast. That's Sounds funny like because idea. I think in Texas they were recently negotiating whether to continue the continue last meal the, 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 the last meal because um, they, I guess they have, in fact I remember them interviewing somebody who prepared last meals and basically always spending his time is making grilled cheese sandwiches. They have just no murderers, wow. you know, the you know the death row people just have no taste, and that is the true crime. Perhaps, perhaps they just don't have an appetite. That, <laughs> that might, I guess, you know, I just really have not imagined this moment enough. You think you're really pointing out a couple of things? Yeah, yeah. So yes, for, I guess I would like you know somebody to knock me on the head to have amnesia about dying, and then give me the meal. Perhaps that could be arranged. Well, <laughs> I'm counting on you, Mia. Yeah, we'll have to give it more thought. Um, but for now, uh, I guess thank you so much for being on our first podcast. Well, good um, luck with this. This is a great idea. Yeah, um, I really hope to continue these conversations. So thanks a lot. You bet. Thank you, Mia. That was a conversation with Professor Brian Bouldry, a senior lecturer at Northwestern's English Department who teaches classes in fiction, creative nonfiction, and literature. Prompt is a literary magazine and community for writers at Northwestern University. We publish the work of Northwestern undergrads from any and all departments. We publish fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, visual art, and anything in between. Our weekly workshops and tutorials take place every Tuesday from 9 to 10 p.m. in University Hall, room 218. The deadline for our winter contest is February 1st, and our deadline for all other submissions is February 15th. Please check out our website, www.promptmagazine.com, for details on how to submit.